0: This is episode 175 of A Love Mora for January 30th, 2016. Welcome back, listeners. To another episode of Lojimora, MuggleNet.com's global reread of Harry Potter, we've torn ourselves away from the recently returned Sorting Hat quiz and wand quiz on Pottermore to join you for our reread. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Caleb Graves.
1: I'm Alyssa
2: Jeanette. and this is our special guest, Serena. Hi, I'm Serena Dory.
3: Serena, tell us a little about yourself.
2: Um, I'm a fantasy and science fiction author. I've sold over a 100- hundred stories to science fiction and fantasy magazines. Um, I have a couple novels out right now, silent moon and dawn of the morning star. And, uh, tomorrow ghosts, werewolves and zombies. Oh my, is coming out, um, (laughs) on Amazon and next month, the memory thief, a steampunk romance novel is coming out. Um, and that'll be released. I've also, I'm a school teacher and I've taught a class called Myth, Magic, and Muggles. And we dressed up as witches and, um, I got to teach kids about Harry Potter and that was a lot of fun.
0: Yay. Teachers teaching kids about Harry Potter. Yeah. (laughs) Indoctrinating the next generation. Good job, Serena.
2: (laughs) It it helped. It was a very liberal school and they allowed me to do that because I've also taught at schools where, um, certain communities are just not okay with Harry Potter. And Mm -hmm. so, um you know it's it's it always surprises me because there's some really good things good lessons in Harry Potter
0: yeah absolutely
3: and we do even though I feel like the a little more listeners the the true like dedicated fans and listeners are familiar enough with Alyssa by now she's been on quite a few times but we do want to thank her for jumping in at the last minute to sub in as a host
1: oh thanks and also shout out to Eric who very graciously let me take over his spot this week <laughs>
3: So we are going to be, um, this is a unique chapter because we just did the Deathly Hallows part one movie viewing, uh, this past Saturday. Um, so it's, it's a little weird when we were like getting ready, when I was getting ready for this episode, thinking about it because obviously we've never had a movie in the middle of the book. So when I was like rereading, getting ready for this, I was like, Oh, we just talked about so much of this in the movie. <laughs> uh, Deathly Hallows is such a, Fun way to tackle things now because of the split in the movie. But we do want to remit, remind everyone that this week we are going to be discussing uh, chapter 24 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, The Wandmaker. And we want to take a brief moment to thank one of our Patreon sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Jasmine Harris on Patreon. And if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a way for our listeners to support what we do. Um, You can check out our page at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Alohomora. And you uh, can check out some really cool things that you can get for supporting us. And we're going to talk about a little bit more at the end of the show.
1: Okay, great. Uh, we're going to move on to recap comments from the Chapter 23 episode. There was a lot of discussion about uh, wand allegiance. That was, like, the topic of, of the whole comment section. Um, and I felt like there was one comment in particular that kind of cut through the debate. Uh, and that was by, at that time, Remus Wadi Wazid Voldy.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, right? Good name. <laughs> um, and uh, there was basically a lot of talk about how... If, like, if wands are based entirely on allegiance, like, why doesn't just, like, stuff like dueling club where kids are disarming each other all the time, like, how does that factor in to wand allegiance. Uh, and this user said, I think that in most of these instances, wands changed hands, but not necessarily allegiance. I somehow think that kids disarm each other in stupid school fights probably isn't enough to force a change in allegiance. I think intent really matters. One must truly desire to completely overpower their opponent, not just hex the bully and grab his wand. Okay. Ollivander is good at says this in the next chapter, which we will discuss. <laughs> uh, the manner of taking wands <laughs> themselves make a difference in the laws of wand ownership and allegiance. Um, also to add in there... Uh, that I don't think it's just grabbing wands like I don't think it's purely physical even though that's a, a main turning point that's pointed out in the last chapter between Draco and Harry
3: yeah so it was interesting thinking about it backwards um because we get Ollifander starting to talk about it um this chapter I had really forgotten that Harry gets the wand because of like sort of there's more like physical force, and like I for some reason, I always had in my mind it had to be magical, but there's clearly that's clearly not the case. There's a lot going on here
0: it would ha- I would assume it would have to be in tech because I always and it's pretty much this in the in the book too, but I immediately picture that that shot in deadly Hallows one of. Harry and Malfoy having their little petty leg No, it's mine, no it's mine. Um, <laughs> I,
2: I never got the the idea that Harry was taking the wand from Malfoy because he wanted to ha- to own his wand. I always got the impression that he, he just wanted the wands to get out of the way so Malfoy couldn't use it on him or um you know, they were just it's just a weapon, like a gun, like trying to get yeah. the gun out of out of the way so no one can shoot you with it. So, you know, there's this idea that they have an intent to, or or the person who's stealing the wand has this intent to use the wand. In, in that case, Harry didn't, I don't think he intended to use the wand. I think he just, uh, he was defeating Malfoy. He he was the one who, um, like Ollivander said, it, it had to do, I, th- I think the, the ownership really had to do with the act of defeating him more than the act of wanting ownership over the wand, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, you're yeah. saying that the the intent was to disarm. Yeah, the intent
1: steal. was to disarm. Yeah. Well, I think also, I mean, Harry needed a wand.
0: <laughs>
3: he did. <laughs> it did, right. it did
2: mm-hmm. work out well.
3: Yes. So do you think that's an interesting idea, it Because maybe it's like this deep, innate feeling that, you know, he really desperately needs a wand. So like whatever action like magic is leading him to do is actually sort of working toward capturing another wand. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. It's also interesting that, uh, that wand allegiance is kind of transferable because Harry gains ownership of the elder wand by stealing Draco's wand purely because Draco has ownership of the elder wand at this point. Right. So it's a little bit more of like uh, like a spiritual, I guess, kind of ownership rather than purely physical.
2: I do wonder if Harry had, if Harry had his own wand at that point and he had taken Draco's wand to disarm him, but he didn't need the wand If he wouldn't have needed it, if it wouldn't have worked or, or because he would have already had a wand, then he, then he would have had two wands. So what, what was, you know, which, which one would have been his true wand then?
0: Mm, Can you have more than one true wand?
2: Yeah. I, I don't know if it's ever been brought up.
0: Well, cause there's a few people who we know, I don't know if we've ever seen anybody who's other than like the people who are in ownership of the elder wand. Well, okay, because mm-hmm. that's, that's the case, I suppose, with Malfoy, because he could technically be, he's technically oh. at one point the master of the Elder Wand, but his wand still works for him.
1: Okay. And well. the same
0: would be true for Dumbledore before he lost the Elder Wand to Malfoy. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, people have multiple wands all the time. I mean, when Ron breaks, like, first of all, Ron has a hand-me-down wand at the very beginning, then gets uh-huh. his, oh. and then gets his own. Uh-huh. So I mean wands will work for you, and I think that's kind of the whole point of the allegiance. It's like wands will work for you whether they're allegiant to you or not. But yeah. it's but when they are, that's makes it that much stronger. Mm-hmm. You
3: know what the deeper metaphor that Joe's really trying to do with all this is, right? What's that? <laughs> it's like if, if there's like if you have a soulmate or not.
2: <laughs> Oh, as as, as someone, who <laughs> I'm writes, kidding.
3: I'm kidding. Like, uh, I, I'm not trying to get heavier. Yeah,
2: as someone who writes paranormal romance, I I think yeah, in in the world I write, wand wand magic would be something romantic. It, it would ha- be a euphemism for something else in a kids book, though. I don't know if it would necessarily be the same thing.
3: Yeah, no, I'm totally kidding. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, cool. That's a good thing to keep thinking about as we go on through the chapter. Um, and the, I really liked this particular comment from how am I going to translate this, um, regarding the interaction that, Her- that Harry is privy to between Grindelwald and Voldemort. Um, And he says here, from the few lines we get, I get the impression that Grindelwald is regarding Voldemort as foolish and kind of unimportant. When you've spent more than half of your life alone in a cell as a result of your crimes and murders, the rest of the world becomes unimportant, and a tyrant and murderer who drops in to kill you is not frightening, but pitiful, and maybe even a little bit ironically funny. Grindelwald, as far as he knows about Voldemort's doings, regards them as inefficient and taunts him for that. Which is, I've always wondered at the difference, like sort of the juxtaposition between Grindelwald's international fame and Voldemort's relatively local infamy. Like, Mm -hmm. he has, like, international... The international wizarding community really doesn't see Voldemort as terribly much of a threat. Like, they don't offer to assist the British Ministry of Magic with defeating him. Like, it's very much like a local problem, and I find that really Mm -hmm. interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Grindelwald is, um, even though Voldemort's ideals. And kind of the way he carries them out are very much easy to compare to to Hitler. Grindelwald is a more direct comparison just because of the time period. Mm-hmm. And so I think with that, you get the idea that maybe more of Europe knew what Grindelwald was up to, which is interesting because I believe it's stated earlier in the book, possibly by Hermione, that Grindelwald didn't really get much power outside of his direct area. But um, he didn't. He didn't really succeed in going too much further. He wasn't like Hitler, where he spread over m- multiple countries um, over a period of many years. Um, from the sound of it,
3: see, I always thought that I thought that he did, and he just never came to Britain.
0: Maybe that's it. Maybe he wasn't. Well, maybe he was afraid of care.
1: Dumbledore. I mean, that's kind of like the right. implication yeah. is that like. You know, Grindelwald is considered up until Voldemort to be the greatest dark wizard who ever lived. And I mean, even after Voldemort, like he's still like Dumbledore is still referred to as the one who beat the greatest dark wizard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he
2: was he was a big enough villain that, yeah, someone outside of his own country defeated him and had to be there in the fight. It does seem interesting how um, you have two different villains and one villain is interrogating the former big bad guy. And so it kind of does seem like, oh, yeah, maybe maybe Grindelwald doesn't doesn't see Voldemort as a threat because he was he used to be the big bad guy, so maybe to him he is unimportant. But also after being an Azkaban for however long, um, well, like any, well,
0: he's a Oh,
2: oh, yeah, okay. Um,
0: in prison in prison <laughs> yeah. but but i
2: I imagine the situation after being imprisoned for a long time he he probably um like what would you be afraid of like you, your life is already pretty horrible um, like maybe maybe he was wanting death at that point maybe he didn't care about anything
0: well, uh, I think that's what makes Grindelwald so interesting in the book and such a disappointment in the movie <laughs> um, because he's the fact that he, he's he's pretty much he seems to know that he's that Voldemort's going to kill him and he doesn't care. Um, of course, in the movie, Voldemort spares him for no discernible reason. Um, but uh, the fact that Grindelwald has embraced that he that he's ready to die um, to me s- suggests that he's definitely had a period of reflection during his time in prison because somebody who was seeking the Deathly Hallows in the way that grindelwald was was not seeking them to be the master of death in the way that say harry becomes they're seeking to defeat death to not to not to conquer death by not dying in a way um and it, a more kind of juvenile simplistic view of conquering death um so the idea that grindelwald is accepting of death to me says that I think he kind of reflected over the years, and he certainly, I think that's why he sees Voldemort. Like, what he's saying to Voldemort in the prison cell isn't too dissimilar to what some of the things Dumbledore's already said to Voldemort in personal encounters about death, Then there are much worse things, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the point that Grindelwald has kind of come to accept death after all of that struggle is is very poignant and kind of is very understated so it 's cool to kind of be able to talk about it okay and finally i 'm definitely going to be pulling a total alyssa here uh, rose lumos. Yeah. Uh, made a great comment here saying, I always wondered if Wormtail was the first death Ron ever saw. I know a Death Eater is killed in the Battle of Hogwarts and Half-Blood Prince, but there's no indication that Ron or Hermione actually saw it. I always wondered if by the end of Deathly Hallows, if the entire trio could see Thestrals. I know it's a grim thought, but Harry has seen half a dozen deaths already, both in real life and through Voldemort's visions. And it seems a little unbalanced if Ron and Hermione end the war not seeing a death. However, as I'm writing this, I'm thinking about the big final battle and everyone was watching Harry and Voldemort duel. So now every, so now can Everyone who was watching it see Thestrals. If Voldemort died, did he die? Considering he only has one seventh of a soul, and there's a lot to unpack there. But uh, I'm going there's to a focus. a lot to think about. <laughs> there. Yes. Um, so I thought that was a fantastic comment. But I was particularly taken by the first sentence because I'm I'm a Peter fan. All right, like I'm a Peter fan. <laughs> I, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I appreciate Peter. And I, I dig him.
3: I think it's interesting that you're subbing in for, you're, you're subbing in for Eric, so no matter <laughs> what, we would have had like the defense of Peter, so it's super appropriate. Oh, that's
1: so, that's funny, because Eric and I have talked about that, just he and I, and he was very like, like he was, I mean, maybe he was playing devil's advocate, but he was very like, Peter sucks.
3: And I was like, "How Wait, dare you say hold that? Up. To me? I thought Eric was pro Peter Michael, correct me on this if I'm
0: wrong. I'm not sure Eric can be very easily swayed if you present a good <laughs> argument, so
1: okay, <laughs> but I just thought that was a really cool thought because of Ron's history with with Peter and like through scabbers, mm. um just to kind of have that like to have that be the death that like wow. enables you to see this this otherworldly creature it's it's like a weird rite of passage like he's your first pet and also like i mean in a lot of ways like oh. your pet is like the first death in your life
2: yes uh, for a lot
1: of people um and i just find mm-hmm. that really really
3: cool that's a great point i never thought about it that way but so real
0: i would imagine this would be probably a pretty striking death for him, just because it's like he witnesses the whole thing and it's so horrific yeah I, I think it's guaranteed that they all, literally everybody in Hogwarts sees thestrals now. After the battle (laughs) of Hogwarts, there's no person who doesn't see thestrals after that night. Um, Yeah,
1: except for like maybe the babies who were like shuffled off, you
0: know, (laughs) the the little first years. Yes, I. mm, The thing too is Ron is present when Fred dies, so yes, he does see thestrals. That's oh, that's true.
2: Didn't they see Mad Mad Eye Moody die or? Did not everyone no.
3: travel? Not everyone. And no, no, only um, who was with him? Now I'm forgetting. Bill, Bill. and
1: yeah. Um,
3: yeah, I think it's just Bill.
1: Was it? Like, oh, okay. Well, or Fleur. Bill and Fleur. Because he were walks together. up and
3: says, "Mad Eye's
0: dead," right?
1: Yeah. Bill and Fleur must have been together.
0: Okay. Yeah, because Ron is with Tonks. Yeah. Cause, so was it Dung that was with? Yeah, d- Mad Eye
1: Mundungus yes. was with him. So yeah, you probably saw it. because <laughs> yeah. he pieced out. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah, right. how he ended up dying. So yeah,
3: Bill and Fleur. But yeah.
0: yeah, no, it's, I mean, I think, I think Harry, Ron and Hermione have seen plenty of ish to guarantee by this point oh, yeah. that yeah, no, they all see Thestrals.
3: <laughs> so now that, now that we're thinking about Ron and Wormtail here, I'm really wondering if Joe thought about this because now that I haven't thought about this in depth, but now I'm really surprised. I mean, it's a very fast scene. There's a lot happening that we didn't see Ron react to it, at least a little bit more. I mean, like, he despises Pettigrew for who he is, or who like, who he thinks he is, who he wants to perceive him as, but, like, that's still, like, his pet, like, it's his pet, it was someone who's a part of his life, like, I'm kind of surprised we don't see a little bit more.
0: I think what? the noteworthy thing in that scene for Ron is that, like Harry, he tries to save Pettigrew. Um, he's yeah, he's uh-huh. not... That's fair. He, and he's not necessarily doing it because Pettigrew's a good person or anything, he's doing it because, you know, Ron and Harry have a sense of what's wrong and what's right, um, yeah. So that's – I think that's just their kind of innate nature jumping in. I also in, tend to I, think
1: that uh, Joe did not intend for this to be a terribly significant death because she – strangely, having created such a fascinating character with such a, an amazing arc, she really underestimates Peter? Like she like for real underestimates him all the time. And I'm like, you wrote him. Like he's fascinating. <laughs> um, but she, she – I mean she wrote his death literally – you know, t- less than 10 pages before Dobby's death, which is really the most significant, like, quote, celebrated death in the whole of the book. I mean, he's the only one who actually gets a funeral that we see.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Uh, and the, so it's immediately overshadowed by this other character who is immediately paralleled with Dumbledore. So it's it's like, I, I don't, I mean, I don't nece- necessarily know if she intended to overshadow Peter in that way, but it wouldn't really surprise me.
0: Yeah, I just don't. I think, in terms of Harry Ron, and Ron's thinking, it is kind of horrific as the event is. It's like Pettigrew's kind of the scum of the earth to them. Sure. Um he's the he's he's a Gryffindor who's the opposite of all of their like their feelings on what a Gryffindor should be, and he's completely within Voldemort's circle and does his bidding. And um, I think at this point, there's really not much. I you know, Ron Ron has already had his moment to express his disgust towards Pettigrew as far as the rat thing in Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, he makes that pretty clear. He cuts those ties right away. Um, so I think there's not really that much confusion on their part. Two, uh, you know, Harry, Pettigrew has played such a major role in, as Harry remembers in this moment, of bringing Voldemort back to life. Um Absolutely which I think Harry definitely also has issues with, takes umbrage with.
1: <laughs> Although if he hadn't, there would have been no real way to kill him.
0: That's true. Just mm-hmm. saying, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Pettigrew. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, cool. Well, that's those, those are all the recap comments I uh, grabbed. So thanks so much to Rose Lumos. How am I going to translate this? And that time Remus Wadiwazi Voldy. Mm-hmm. Great thoughts, you guys.
0: And we've got some more thoughts from you listeners um, from the podcast question of the week responses. As a reminder, uh, the uh, question from a few weeks ago, since um, last week was our movie discussion, uh, the question was, in this chapter, Bellatrix panics when she thinks that the trio has broken into her vault at Gringotts. We speculated that Voldemort might have instructed Snape to put the sword into the vault, and that his reasoning for this might be that he wants to make the last relic of a Hogwarts founder into his final horcrux. But as Hermione tells us, the sword is impregnated with Basilisk Venom. Of course, Basilisk Venom destroys Horcruxes. Therefore, would you be able to make the sword into a Horcrux, or would it backfire on Voldemort? So you guys had some very interesting responses to this. There were a lot of kind of additional side questions that were brought up from this question. This question incited a lot of other discussion. Um, we're going to kind of try and keep it focused on this particular question with these comments. First one comes, um fittingly, from Voldemort's Lost Nose, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who has an opinion on this. Um Voldemort's Lost Nose says, Basilisk Venom destroys Horcruxes. But I don't think the sword would destroy itself, just like a snake can't die from its own venom. Snake venom, which I suppose is comparable to Vasilisk venom, it has proteins. If you swallow snake venom, you won't die because the proteins will be broken down and turned into harmless amino acids in the digestive system. Though I don't suggest you try it, and... For the record, uh, Aloha more does not recommend <laughs> <laughs> <the> disclaimer. <laughs> Drinking snake venom <laughs> The venom is only dangerous if you get it in the blood circulation Snakes have their venom in special compartments Where it can't get into the veins Thus preventing the snake from being poisoned by its own venom Similarly, I think the ba- that the basilisk venom And the piece of soul Would be separated in the sword Maybe not necessarily physically separated But perhaps by some magical force um, so do you guys think that that's a possibility that the, that the sword is magical enough to actually keep the venom and the Horcrux separate if it had both inside it?
2: It seems like either it would repel the Horcrux and it just wouldn't work, or it would be a Horcrux in the way that Harry Potter is sort of a Horcrux. Well, he is a Horcrux and it's, um, he, it sort of fights with itself. Like Harry fights with himself because he has Voldemort in him, but he also has, his own nature and his own qualities in him. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting idea. I didn't assume that the sword was going to be made into a Horcrux. Maybe, maybe at one point I did. So I had some other thoughts for, or reasons why I thought the sword, um, was in the, the it was vault. was even in the vault. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and a lot of the listeners were debating about that on the site because, um, some people were saying, well, Voldemort already had seven. If you mm-hmm. include the one in his own body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the, the, some listeners were saying, well, maybe that wasn't necessary. like, since that was his original soul, maybe people weren't counting, maybe he wasn't counting that as number seven and that he still had one more that he wanted to do. Um, so it's kind of hard to say, um, it depends on if you count that first, if, if you count Voldemort's original soul, um, the original piece that's still in him as, as, um, a piece of the seven or if it's just an addition in addition to that, because it's the original piece. Um, but yeah, going, going off of the assumption that it is, um, cause then if, of course, if you, if they can live side by side in the sword, how does that affect the sword? If it's being used as a Horcrux destroyer, if it's got a Horcrux in it, would it even be able to destroy Horcruxes anymore?
3: It's hmm. a good See, point. I would think if, if, the sword does take in, like, the part of the soul and becomes a Horcrux. I don't think it can destroy other Horcruxes. I think it's almost like the locket trying to chill Carrie to avoid the the sword on, in the pond. Mm-hmm. I think it would be, like, repelled somehow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems, I mean, to me, it seems like, because I, I really like the idea of just equating the sword with, like, how a snake works. Basically, that the venom can be stored in its separate parts so they don't interact. But then you if you've got the issue where the sword is still ostensibly being used to destroy Horcruxes, but it can't because it's got the Horcrux in it, but it's also still got the venom in it that like, how is that even going to be possible?
1: Yeah. I Um, think I tend to fall on the side of it repelling it almost like a magnet. Like they're just anathema to each other.
0: They just don't work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and um, we had another comment from Dora Nympha who said, the question is also what the sword regards as something that makes it stronger and what it re- registers as dirt. Does it see a piece of soul as something that will make it stronger or weaker? Any ordinary object will become indestructible by normal ways once it houses a piece of soul. So you could argue that the sword thinks that becoming a horcrux will do it good, an extra wall of protection, or the sword repelling anything that's dirt, which, that which defies it, defiles it, Maybe it would see the soul or the prospect of becoming a horcrux as something undesirable, so it would re- it would repel the soul even without the venom inside it first. So the idea that the sword can actually sense that the horcrux isn't good for it.
3: Yeah, I mean we have all the proof that we really need to know that the sword. I don't know if we want to go so far as say it's sentient, but like it definitely can recognize different things. It recognizes who to reveal itself to. So
2: right. The, the sword definitely presents itself to those who, who are in need or a Gryffindor, um, who deserves it. And so it seems like the sword does have some sort of distinguishing, I don't know if sentience is the right word, but it has something that, that tells it like, okay, this is a, a Gryffindor and this is someone, um, who needs me right now. And I just wonder, like, would the sword disappear if someone had it who was going to use it for evil? Would it, appear to someone else instead because it seems like the sword doesn't have that power maybe Hmm. it would pull
1: a silver hand thing and just stab the person trying to use it yeah Yeah, (laughs) sure
0: (laughs) backfire yeah i don't i don't know because well i mean that even brings up too like i'm assuming i i don't know what would happen if what if like you know harry put the sorting hat on was like i need the sword and then he got it and then he looked over and i don't know say, like, Hannah Abbott's over there, and he's like, "Yeah, Hannah Abbott, take this sword for a minute. <laughs> like, the sword, I, I ostensibly, I guess, would disappear, since it's not meant to, reckon, to be used by anybody but a Gryffindor. Well, is but that that's explicitly not, said? But, that, mm-hmm. I suppose, well, I don't know. That's not, I guess that's not true, too, because Snape handles the sword. So. Right. I think we've talked about this in the past. That I feel like we have other houses can touch the sword.
3: Yeah, we we've talked about it I definitely at some point whether other people and like we brought up the specific <clears throat> example that Snape had to have held like you know held the sword at some point.
0: Mm-hmm. You actually touched it. Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Well, I think there's a difference between being able to touch it and having it reveal right. itself
3: to you. Uh, sure, yeah. and use it for that matter, like effectively. Because like you know it could be like Thor's hammer, like or maybe something in between. You Can't you can pick it up and maybe you can't wield it. I don't know.
2: Well, grip hook. I'm also being super it.
3: possessive over Gryffindor
2: relics, so. Yeah. Um, but uh, is isn't it? I mean, grip Grip hook has it for a while. Um mm-hmm. But you know, like f- for how long? So, so other people can handle it.
1: Yeah. Well, then of course that calls into question the com- the conversation that I'll have later about who really owns the sword, like Gryffindor oh, yeah, or, or the yeah.
0: goblins. Well, and as far as grip hook goes, the only thing we know, like the movie, kind of tries to give its own answer and Roland kind of implies it in the book that once the sword is called upon grip hook loses it. Um, right. so right. he doesn't get to keep it. So since we were talking about Snape, uh, we actually have a comment from, uh, Snape's many buttons. Uh, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> <laughs> who knew? So who says, I believe it is not that the basilisk venom kills the soul fragment, but rather it penetrates the dark spells that protect the container that houses the soul fragment and then destroys the container so completely that it cannot be repaired. Without its container, the soul fragment dies. If exposure to basilisk venom is what kills the soul fragment, then the fragment in Harry would have been killed when he was pierced by the basilisk fang in the chamber. But Rowling has said that the bit of soul in Harry wasn't destroyed when he was pierced by the basilisk fang, because the Horcrux container, in that case Harry, has to be destroyed beyond repair in order for the soul to be killed. So, the impregnated Basilisk Venom wouldn't affect the bit of soul housed in the sword if it became a horcrux, and I believe Voldemort could have made a horcrux out of it if he'd wanted to.
1: It's a great answer. Yeah, Yeah. wow.
0: I really enjoy that this kind of used that example from Chamber, Uh which the Basilisk Venom harkens straight back to, to clarify that... And Rowling was... I remember, actually, Rowling was asked about this on Twitter And she was very adamantly clear that this is why that wasn't a plot hole, Um, because a lot of people thought it was. So I am now Mm -hmm.
2: convinced that um, the sword could become a Horcrux. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. Well, I think
3: at the same time, though, I think I totally agree with what Snape's many buttons is saying that you know I think we can now accept that that has to happen, like the container has to be destroyed. But I don't think that necessarily negates that. The possibility that the sword could not take in the soul,
4: mm-hmm. yeah, right? Because I agree like with those are
3: those aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and I think you know, there's a the possibility that the basilisk thing still repels it, and B maybe just like the nature. No, I don't want to say that because all the other founder stuff. Is able are able to be made into Horcruxes, so I think there's still a possibility that the Basilisk Fang can repel the bit of the soul.
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Well, and the thing too is, if the sword can in fact become a receptacle for a Horcrux, it's really a good thing that Voldemort didn't do it, just because the sword would have been extremely hard to destroy at that point.
3: Right? Um, yeah. Maybe with something like, do we think like Fiend? Fi- do we think Fiend Fire could have destroyed the Sword of Gryffindor? I think well, so.
0: I'd hope so yeah. of course it's the, that's the issue again of it takes in what makes it stronger I don't know if you put a sword in fire after it's already been made well,
3: <laughs> yeah well because then we're getting some like some forgery stuff yeah, right yeah. like
0: swords being forged uh, so yeah so but it's it's one of those questions that, that Rowling will uh, maybe someday answer officially <laughs> um, but uh, maybe because I'm sure she'll have a lot she'd have a lot to say about that um,
4: encyclopedia <laughs>
0: But um you guys, the listeners, did a great job in the meantime, and I wanted to make sure and shout out to those of you whose thoughts I wasn't able to um, include here in <clears throat> the comments. Uh shout out to Al, Crimson Snidget, Dream eighty eight, Hermione P how am I going to translate this? Ravenclaw Forever, Rose Loomis, Sliven Puffdoor, and Swedes Fly Fords. I like that username. A shout out especially to you, Swedes Fly Fords. That was your first comment this week. Um also, shout out Maxima to a few of you who um made some really um, great bigger conversations um and all, some comments that I was hoping to actually use but didn't have the space for, unfortunately. So shout out to K shout out Maxima to KC L, Crimson Phoenix, Disk Kid, and then there was a great Hogwarts Founders conversation with the with the Horcruxes that was uh started by Felix Commander, continued on by Dobby's Many Hats, Martin Miggs, Regulus Blackout, and Wokanshu Taido, I believe, is how you pronounce it. So Um, If you guys want to check out those conversations, head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com. All of the comments you did here were actually truncated versions of the full things, so you can read the full things over at our main site. Also, before we go into our main discussion, we want to mention once again that um, we have a Patreon page. Um, I believe it's patreon.com slash alohamora, right? That is correct. That is the website. You can also find that through our main site, com. If you don't donate to our Patreon, as little as a dollar, um, you can actually get access to some really cool stuff and help fund our show beyond the ending. And speaking of that, we have determined our post-Hallows plans. And uh, for those uh, Patreon sponsors in the coming weeks, um, we will have our announcement of those plans um, for you guys on Patreon who donate a little earlier than we give to the general public. So make sure and donate on Patreon. You will also be able to get a exclusive reading of the tale of the three brothers, which was done by me back a few weeks ago when my voice was much better than this. I promise <laughs> a very theatrical reading, um, of that story. Uh, so make sure and head over to patreoncom slash to check it out.
3: All right. We are going to move into this week's chapter discussion.
0: Chapter 24 The Wand Maker
3: So, a quick summary of Chapter 24. Harry has to face burying Dobby. The group sends Dobby off, and then Harry quickly takes authority over the group again, he faces a troubling dilemma with his future journey, and before he leaves Shell Cottage, he has very important conversations with both Griphook and Ollivander for info and help along the way. And toward the end of the chapter, we soar back to Hogwarts, but not with Harry, but with Voldemort. So, this chapter, uh, I th- was. It's a really interesting chapter now. Especially for, well, a couple of reasons. One, because, like, being a law school student, now I've read this chapter thinking about so many, like, contract and personal property issues, which we started to, like, (laughs) think about those property issues um, in the recap comments. But um, we start off with something much more somber and emotional as Harry um, has to face the fact that Dobby is now dead and um, preparing to send him away. So Alyssa mentioned this in the recap comments, but it's something that really screams out um, as you start reading this chapter is how Harry likens Dobby to Dumbledore. The first paragraph opens up with Harry uh, recalling the scene of losing Dumbledore and Dumbledore dead. Um, but it's also different. Um, Harry distinguished it as Dobby being such a small figure that he's just seeing the, the body in front of him. And the thing that really... Got me this time, and I hadn't thought about it. Is the fact that Harry has to pull the knife out of Dobby's lifeless body.
4: Oh, um,
3: which is such a the thought of ever having to do something like that is just it's t- devastating.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. I, I think that was almost worse than seeing Dobby die for me because it was really tragic seeing him die. But the the turmoil and everything that Harry goes through. Because it's not just Dobby's death now that he's seeing and feeling. I mean, he's really he's experienced death again, and he's seeing like every experience of death that, and, and it's so much more visceral because it's in Harry Potter's hand. It's very powerful and horrible.
1: I have to say, I was not. Ne- I was never terribly. I mean, I was definitely sad that that Har- I think I was more sad that Harry was sad like cuz I uh, never I was never a huge mm-hmm. Dobby fan uh and not that he's not an important character and does cool things but he is very irritating to me <laughs> so it's <laughs> kind of like all right like this is like he did like he died doing an awesome thing and that's fine <laughs> but obviously the fallout of that is uh, is a really important moment For Harry to kind of, it's like a little bit easier. Like, obviously, Harry's had people risk their lives for him in the past and even die for him. Um, But I think that this is the first time, like, where it's explicitly been like, I am dying, like, for you. Because, like, Dumbledore, even though you could say he died for Harry, like, he knew ahead of time he was going to die. Like, that was never... Like, that wasn't, like, an explicitly for Harry kind of thing.
0: Well, and at the beginning of the book, when they get to the burrow, you know, the characters all say, you know, this isn't all just for you, Harry. Like, Mm -hmm. this is bigger than you. But I think you're right in this case, Alyssa, that Dobby's death is purely to, and Dobby makes that so clear, is to protect Harry. Um, He's sacrificing himself for for Harry. And I, I'm, I'm also with you, Alyssa, too, on my feelings on Dobby's death. I was, <laughs> I was never struck, like, I'm struck by the writing of Dobby's death, and I'm struck that she chose Dobby to be this momentous thing for Harry. Um, because it really, Harry does, and I think, I think that's what makes the spew subplot so important, and really kind of why it's sad that, like, David Heyman and, has said before, like, <clears throat> when they took it out of goblet, he said, "Oh, we took it out of goblet because it was a Hermione issue, and that's why we removed it from the films. And it wasn't about Harry. And you know, I think that that's another yeah. one of those things that's kind of so damaging.
1: Heavy sigh. Nuances. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: yeah, because and then uh, to, and that's what I was trying to say during the movie watch is why I don't care about Dobby's death at all in the movies. Everybody gets so choked up about it. I understand why." but from just purely a film standpoint there's no reason to get upset about dobby's death in the movies cuz the movie works so hard to make you care because it knows that you don't right Agreed. so that you know that which is unfortunate for because for me that kind of cheapens dobby's death even more i think what's interesting here what you said Caleb about how cuz i never really noticed it until this read that that harry so likens dobby's death to dumbledore's and he starts making these comparisons and i think in the book, Dobby's death is so important because it's like this epiphany moment. Like Harry has so many realizations about what death really means to him and what it means on his journey. And he, and in terms of comparing Dobby to Dumbledore, Harry's starting to see Dumbledore as less of a kind of, this whole book, Harry has been so frustrated with Dumbledore and what he's asked him to do. And this is the first time in a while that Harry is full of these realizations where he's like, no, 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 Dumbledore did this because he knew this was going to happen or Dumbledore did this because he knew it was the right thing for me to do.
3: Absolutely. This this chapter is a turning point in the way Harry thinks about it. And he'll kind of he kind of reset a couple of times throughout the book, but I think this is a real turning point in him starting to like shift back toward Dumbledore gets it mindset as opposed to where, like you said, he's been so frustrated for most of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and he feels this overwhelming love for what Dobby did and he realizes that that's allowed him to access the ability to perform, um, legilimency, um, right in a way that he never was before. So he can actually close off. The funny thing is he's, he's accessed this ability by the point where he doesn't want to use it anymore because now he needs to peek into Voldemort's head all the time. Um, yes. so he can't really, he doesn't end up really using it. Um, but he knows how now. Um, and it's, you know. Kind of fitting when you really think about it that of course the, the, the if the way to perform legitimacy is love, um, kind of no wonder that Snape was probably not the right teacher for that. <laughs> uh, as far yes. as Harry goes,
3: uh, so actually now I think I'm going to read that quote because there's a lot just like packed into like three sentences mm-hmm. when he talks about Snape and the being able to like. Um, Shut Voldemort out. So it says, his scar burned, but he was master of the pain. He felt it, yet was apart from it. He had learned control at last, learned to shut his mind to Voldemort, the very thing Dumbledore had wanted him to learn from Snape. Just as Voldemort had not been able to possess Harry while Harry was consumed with grief for Sirius, so his thoughts could not penetrate Harry now while he mourned Dobby. Grief, it seemed, drove Voldemort out. Though so Dumbledore, of course, would have said that it was love. And like. I, you know, I totally really hadn't made the connection between, you know, this is something he experiences both with Sirius and Dobby, but this is also just so different because, you know, he's he's making the connection to Sirius because of, like, what the grief did for him, but also, like, the monumental level of what it is, just on so many different levels, and the way he keeps liking it likening it to Dumbledore.
0: Yeah.
2: It's interesting because... In, in the text, it's likening, likening this to Dumbledore, but as a reader, I kept getting this is, this is like his mother's love for him. This is
4: hmm. like,
2: uh, every, every experience of grief that he's had and these people who sacrifice him, it all ultimately boils back down to that very first experience of someone, uh, sacrificing himself for Harry. And that was his mother. So he's saying, Oh, it's like Dumbledore. Or, um, Dobby's, Dobby's death is like Dumbledore. But in my mind, I kept saying, oh, and, and it's like his mother, everyone's death for him is like that first time.
1: I agree. I think that's a great note.
0: I think, I think Dobby's death is almost the death of the series that is the most like his mother's because it's the most self-sacrificial and the most kind of, it, 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 there's no thought for Dobby behind it. It just is, it's in his nature to do it. Um. So, yeah, I, I could, I could definitely see that. I think that may be why, again, why this is such a turning point for, for Harry's way of thinking about what this all means. And that really, that really helps Serena. I'm glad you said it that way because that helps put it in context for me. Just because, um, to this day, I still don't, I still don't cry. I don't tear up. My heart is as cold as ice when I read this, this section. I just, it's sad and I know it's sad, but there's so many other deaths that, affect me personally as a reader throughout the series. There's so many other characters that I'm more attached to than Dobby, and I think part of that, unfortunately, comes from... And it may be another reason why Harry's so sad about this, is Harry does treat Dobby with such kind of derision whenever he Mm. encounters him in the previous books. Like, he's like, oh... Dobby sure is annoying, but he's a nice guy to have around. (laughs) (laughs) So, like that's, and you know, the listeners will say, "Oh, that's that's a little cruel." But I mean, read the passages. Harry really, I mean, really, Harry doesn't really find he's he finds Dobby hard to tolerate, even after Chamber of Secrets. Um, I think Dobby does a. I think it's uh, through our reread. I've really seen that Dobby, how important Dobby is to the series and I can see why this death works the way it does. But it is it's a very interesting choice. I think Eric really said it well too when we were talking about the movie in terms of that Dobby is this representation of a very pure kind of innocence. Um mm. he's never done anything wrong. Um and he's he's like a child and it it's basically like a child dying in that way too.
1: I feel like there's also a great thing here like, since you know, this is, this is purely self-sacrificial, as we said, and it's also like sort of the culmination of Dobby's life as, of, as a free elf. Like mm-hmm. he makes this, this final choice to serve like Harry as a, as a person and as a, a figurehead and as a, I mean, a messiah, obviously like a messiah figure. Um, yeah. It's a little bit like a uh, John the Baptist almost preparing the way. Mm. That's
0: that's real. <laughs> that's a good comparison. Dobby yeah.
2: the Baptist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and you know, we know those those religious parallels are going on here. Oh sure. yeah, so Rowling's yeah. definitely. We know she's doing that intentionally. So yeah, that that totally makes sense.
3: And so Harry gets um, he digs the grave manually, which just is always something that's really striking to me because this is not really something both that Harry ever has the opportunity to really deal with. And you never also just like see this sort of like side come out of him. Yeah. Because it also has to do with kind of what we were talking have been talking about like, you know, this is a very unique death because it's the only one that he really like has the time that impacts him so much to deal with. Like Sirius never has a funeral. Dumbledore does, but Harry has so much still going. He's just learning about the Horcruxes and he's thinking about his next steps. And here he really suspends a lot. Um, he really like internalizes it, pushes everyone away, everything away, and just like this physical labor of digging the grave that he wants to do alone.
0: Yeah, there's that great passage where he's he's it's kind of mirroring his thoughts and saying Horcrux, Hallow's, Horcrux, Hallow's, and then it mm-hmm. says it's basically him being like, I keep hearing that in in my head, but I don't care. Like he's he's lost his obsession with both completely in this moment, and it is all about this manual labor, um, which, you know, another great moment, um, another one of those moments from Hallows where it's, it's that, you know, a moment without magic is so much more impactful and, and important. Um, there's, there's no magical Harry Potter stuff going on here. This is kind of like, this is just plain old reality of digging a grave and, and going to a funeral. There's nothing particularly... Harry Potter going on here.
3: Right. Um, Harry also, as he's thinking about some of these things that has have been going on in these last few moments, um, he recognized that Voldemort has killed Grindelwald. So even though he's able to shut out Voldemort, he's kind of like having, he's basically touching on Voldemort a little bit. He knows that, that Grindelwald is dead, but he doesn't care right now. Um, where these deaths that Voldemort has inflicted in his search for the Elder Wand lately has really impacted Harry, here it doesn't. Um, But he does consider Wormtell's death just for a few moments because he hasn't really had time to really think about it. And as we mentioned earlier, maybe it's just being overshadowed.
1: I think that – actually, I made a little note here that I think that kind of – and a good example of of the overshadowing and of the kind of minimalizing of Peter, Joe refers to – uh, one small unconscious impulse of mercy, even minimalizing this moment of mercy that saves Harry's life and ends Peter's as unconscious, which mm-hmm. is very is a very interesting choice to me and one that I hadn't really re- thought about until I was rereading. Um, like just it, it's it's very interesting to me that it would be like it, I don't know why is it unconscious?
0: Yeah, you know that's true.
1: That's interesting.
0: I think too that <clears throat> you know a lot of people were expecting something really big from from that from the prisoner f- the thing where Dumbledore was like, "Oh, that'll that'll come in handy later,"
4: mm-hmm.
0: and it, it you know it, it, it's it's big, but like you've said, Alyssa, it's been minimized by everything that came after it. So it was like there was your thing from Prisoner that you've been waiting for since Prisoner, but we're not going to really dwell on it. Um, it 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 is what it is. Um, and, you know, as far as it being a small, unconscious impulse, I think that's really what... I think that's the part that, I guess, makes it striking, is that... And that's why... I, that's what makes it striking as far as how Voldemort set it up. He he would not allow one small little bit of even just a thought of doing anything against him. That That's kind of... I think it's just supposed to speak to the extremes that we're dealing with here.
4: Yeah.
0: And Voldemort is that... He set this hand up so so Peter can't literally can't have a thought otherwise because he knows that any little tiny thought in Peter could switch him the other way.
1: I think that actually now that you point that out I think it could be read two ways. It could be unconscious impulse like like knee jerk like he's just you know there's no real intent behind it. He's just Peter and no big deal. Yeah. Or it's like there that mercy still lives in him despite mm-hmm. his past mm-hmm. actions and yeah. he still has the capacity for good. And I think that's something that they talk a lot about in the course of this book in particular, the capacity for good, being able to to turn the tide even in the midst of other, you know, ill will and ill
3: actions. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think at the end of the series what Narcissa does. I mean,
0: yeah. And the end of yeah. the book, great parallel. And and Dumbledore saw it. Like Dumbledore knows Dumbledore talks frequently about how people have the capacity for more than they may seem to on the surface. Um, so, and he knew that was going to happen at some point. I don't know if he knew exactly, knew what the hand was going to do, but I think he knew that it was interconnected with the mercy bit. So.
1: Yeah, man, this is a sad funeral. (laughs) It is. I know I'm trying to like
0: not keep the
3: chapter so somber, but there's there's a lot to dig into here. Um. So everyone finally does rejoin Harry. Hermione is recovering from the Malfoy Manor, um, being hit by the chandelier, which I had forgotten happened after watching the movie because, of course, she gets out of the way in the movie. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Yeah, she gets Phantom of the Opera in the book. (laughs) Right.
3: (laughs) These poor kids. So um, Luna closes Dobby's eyes and says, there, now he could be sleeping. And um, we get a brief moment of where, again, Harry compares Dobby to Dumbledore, which... For here, this moment seems like to just show the huge impact Dobby had, particularly for Harry. And um, Luna gives some really beautiful remarks about Dobby. Um, the others really can't step up to it. Ron gives an awkward... I can't even remember what he says, but... I think he just, just says thanks. Like, I think he thinks sick. thanks, yeah. And Dean says similar. Um, Harry asks to be left alone. Um, he searches for a stone... Creates a headstone and um, inscribes "Here lies Dobby, a free elf." That Just, is that is very
1: moving.
0: Yeah, very t- great touch from Joe there. Yeah, I like too that Luna is the one who says what she does, who says the big thing, the mm-hmm. his kind of eulogy because Luna. I think that's what makes her character so great. Like, what people love about her is that she, she, because she has the capacity to pretty much say things unfiltered, while that allows her to say things that maybe normal people may not say in like a day to day conversation, that mm-hmm. also permits her to say more honest things than people sometimes are able to say in times of great stress. Um, Like she, she's still her. That's it's, it's kind of her detractor and her gift simultaneously.
2: Mm, Yeah. One of the things I really like about Luna is that she, because she's so honest, she says these really wise, uh, maybe, maybe witty, but not funny witty, but just very wise things that no one else says or no one else would dare to say. But it's done in a very innocent way. And it makes her a fun character, but also a very interesting character.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I just, I love, uh, one, like again and again, I see it so much in these books between Harry and Luna. Luna is really one of the very few characters who understands Harry completely. Yeah. And I feel like that's, like, understands what he needs, not just who he is. Um, because I mean, I think his friends love him, but they don't really understand what Harry needs a lot of the time, uh, as much as they care. Um, and she just continues to prove how, how purely she sees him. And that's something that I really, really appreciate about their bond.
0: And in this case, what's, what's so good about her relationship with Harry, with her being able to express emotions is that Harry is very bad at expressing emotions through words. Mm -hmm. And, and Luna is kind of the answer to that for him and their friendship. Because as he says, as the narration says in his thoughts, is that he, he doesn't need to say, he wants to say something else, but doesn't need to, because Luna already said it. So.
3: (sighs) Ah, so sweet.
1: So thank goodness for
0: Luna Lovegood. Mm -hmm. Indeed.
3: (laughs) So Harry does get past the funeral, it seems like, the manual labor and the final goodbye and making the the grave himself has. Helped him get past it a little bit. Um, they return to the cottage, and first we learn some information about the Weasleys that they are hiding out at Aunt Muriel's. And um, I kind of thought about this this time for the first time: if it's really as logical, if it's the, the logical choice to move the Weasleys to the, to Muriel's house. They use the Fidelius Charm, which is you know a powerful charm, but we've obviously seen plenty of examples of that protection falling through in the series. And if it makes sense to put them at another Weasley's home or if there are any other better alternatives, was it just the really the only option they had?
0: I'd probably say it was um, because they can't go to Grimauld Place. Mm-hmm. And they know that. Um, and I don't know if I don't think they could go. They also can't go to the Tonkses. Um, mm-hmm. So i that's probably yeah, that is probably their best alternative. I mean, I know Muriel is probably known well enough that they could they could go there but i mean if they have set it under the Fidelis charm i guess that's the best bet they have really at this point sure, i, I yeah. it's safer than staying at home
1: if, sure. if there's no stronger charm or or hiding place i mean there's really not much else you can do you kind of just have
3: to work with the security you have so bill mentions um after he mentions that um The Weasels are at Muriel's house that after Ollivander and Griphook recover some that they plan to move them there soon, but Harry really takes, doesn't miss a beat in taking charge and tells Bill flatly no. And um, the text kind of has Bill and everyone else looking pretty shocked at Harry's burst um, because he wants to talk to Ollivander and Griphook. Um, There's obviously an urgent need for Harry, but I guess I was thinking, was it really right for him to assert so much authority so fast over Bill and Fleur in this way? I mean, he's obviously dealing with a lot of raw emotion right now. I mean, same thing with that question. I mean, Bill really quickly takes Harry's explanation that it's for the Order and that he can't answer or talk about it anymore. Um, Not nearly as well as some other members of the Order have in the past.
0: Well, I mean... (laughs) in just like normal social terms, no, that was rude of Harry. You don't come into somebody's house and command that much authority. Um but right. I, I Harry's working on a very as he knows, after kind of reflecting over it, he's working on a very um small time like timeline here that he's gotta figure out this information and I just I think the reason too that Bill accepts it is because that's that's been foretold um, that's been foreshadowed by Ron when he comes back and says that he told Bill what he did and he knows that Bill's disappointed mm-hmm. in him, but Bill doesn't pressure him about it. Right. I'd forgotten about that. That's true. Yeah. Bill's apparently the brother that's good at like letting you do your thing. Like he's, <laughs> he, 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 he understands what's going on and he tries to kind of flesh it out as much as possible. But that kind of fits his image, as being like the rebellious weasley with the ponytail and the earring like <laughs>
1: the cool older brother
0: yeah the cool older brother type he doesn't want to get too nosy but he wants to, you know he wants to be the good older brother but he also doesn't want to uh, nose into your business he's not their dad sure
2: well or he's not molly weasley who who is really trying to wheedle information out of harry mm-hmm. so i mean i i don't know i think i think all things being considered he he, kind of let things slide pretty easily compared to some of the treatment that Harry's got in the past.
0: Well, and I, maybe this is something that the orders, because the can maybe discussed because you know they've already been relayed this information probably through Lupin once he cooled down, and maybe even through McGonagall as well. That Harry's just not relenting information to them, so they're probably because inter- And I won't touch on this too much because that's the next chapter. But of course, Lupin comes to visit. And uh, naturally, he's in a state of euphoria at the time, so he doesn't... That might be attributable to that. But he doesn't ask any questions. He just comes in, has a few drinks, and leaves. Um, considering what he he probably knows Harry's been through since they last saw each other, um, he doesn't ask anything. Um, so it it's possible that the Order has just kind of come to terms with the fact that they're not going to get information out of Harry.
1: I thought of Lupin right away, actually, uh, when I when you kind of see the difference between... How Bill reacts versus how Lupin reacted when Harry is like, uh no, dude. <laughs> like, I'm uh, not telling you anything. Right. And I mean, and Bill and Lupin are a natural parallel for a lot of reasons, especially in this book. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think, I think that's really interesting. Kind of, I mean, not only in the way things have developed in the timeline, but also uh, those two characters and how they relate to Harry and how they relate to each other.
3: So there's this brief moment where I'm um, after he tells Bill that he wants to talk to the two of, uh, to Griphook and Ollivander, that Harry considers what he saw in the mirror shard. He's thinking about Dobby still, and then he'll never figure out for sure who sent Dobby, but he seems to think he knows anyway. And it's implied that he thinks it's Dumbledore. And he recalls the quote from Dumbledore, help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. Um So a little later, it's in the next chapter, actually Ron picks up something that he's talked about, that Ron's talked about before, raising the possibility that Dumbledore is still alive. Harry considers it here, but he doesn't really build on it. There's a lot going on. He doesn't really have time to. Like, does Harry really think it was Dumbledore? And does he think he's coming from the grave or that he's still alive? Like, what is this? Like, I think it's only really like a paragraph that
0: this comes up. This is such... This was such a fun bit of holding the carrot on the string in front of the readers from rolling. Like, this was so good. um, Because it... It, it, it's this was one of those moments where when when we got the answer it was like duh of course yeah. um and but it was but she did such a good job because she made the characters want it so much that they translated so well to the readers because she knew already that i mean i of course she even knew this before probably before as she knew she was planning to kill dumbledore but i mean the massive response to dumbledore's death and the, the you know Dum- the the Dumbledore isn't dead or whatever it was website that they, um, that they put up and uh, it was just such a massive reaction. It's become a meme, you know. Dumbledore Snape kills Dumbledore, right? Um, <clears throat> it was one yeah. of the most um kind of talked about deaths in a in a children's series up to that at that moment. Um, so I think this was really just in a way. It's her. Just I think the the major part point of it is to play with the readers, even maybe more so than Harry Ron and Hermione. They,
2: the, the characters in the story and their reactions are really glossed over, but it's, it, the, she set it up so well with foreshadowing and misdirection that Mm -hmm. I knew, even though it was just very glossed over in the book, It was something that I dwelled on. And I know I'm not the only person, like from the things that you were mentioning, but Mm -hmm. I so much just kept hoping that Dumbledore was really alive still. And in a way, we do get a little bit of time with Dumbledore at the end of the book, but, you know, it's not quite the same.
0: Yeah, this, this hope that characters are alive after they've died, I think is really... She... It's important for her to make the reader... Feel that in the same way that the characters do because it's so that's such an integral piece of understanding death by the end of the book. Um, and really having that feeling that you've that you so want this person to come back, and then learning through the experience the understanding of why they don't or why they can't, um, or why being a ghost in the wizarding world would be an imperfect way of doing that. Um, I think it's just, um, more more good work on Rowling's part to really just push her push her ideas forward here. I I think in I think by that quote you pointed out Caleb that Harry knows that Dumbledore is dead.
3: Mm. And so this this leads up to what I think now having reread it is maybe one of the most interesting passages in the book. Um maybe the series, and that I haven't really thought about it in a while uh, or I really haven't thought about it in this way. Um, so like Harry's internalizing, like, we talked about this a little bit earlier, where Harry's starting to come to terms with maybe Dumbledore was kind of setting him on the right path all along. Or at least that's where his mind is right now. Um, but he's still struggling with it a lot of ways. He, he, he talks about how, um, Dumbledore gave Ron the Illuminator and he understood him. This calls back to Ron, you know, thinking that Dumbledore knew he would leave. Harry said he, he just knew he would come back. Um, Harry says here, you gave him a way back. And you understood Wormtail too. You knew there was a bit of regret there somewhere. And if you knew them, what did you know about me, Dumbledore? Am I meant to know but not to seek? Did you know how hard I'd find that? Is that why you made it this difficult, so I'd have time to work that out? And Alyssa, I think you may know this too, but just the question: What did you know about me, Dumbledore? Followed up by. Am I am I meant to know but not to seek? Did you know how hard I'd find that is that's just such striking like it really thoughts is. to have to deal with.
1: Beautiful writing. Beautiful.
0: Yeah, Harry's finally figured it out. Um that it's he's he's got it. That Epiphany is finally
1: Oh, do you think this is the moment where he realizes he has to accept Death eventually? Well, no,
0: I think that this is the moment where he understands that the Hallows aren't, uh, like, he needs to stop obsessing over things. Mm,
1: to know, um, but not to see. <clears throat> yeah, mm. that's
0: a really profound realization to have at that age. Yeah, um,
1: man, absolutely. And it's
3: setting you up for that final piece, like, that you pulled out there a little Yeah. Like, you know, when he has to come to terms with what Dumbledore knew all along. And we don't ever really get to see Harry, you know, confront that Dumbledore knew that and set that up all along in like a full real way. But like, this is the setup for that later part.
0: Well, and as we see in this chapter, Harry's about like, right after this thought, Harry has, is presented with the choice of what to prioritize. And he makes the right choice. Um No matter what the characters tell him after the fact, Um he makes the right choice about what to do and what information to get first.
1: I think it's also interesting to note that, Although Dumbledore understood that Harry would eventually choose death, Dumbledore had no way of knowing in what order this would happen, and that Harry very well could have died. Like like Voldemort's body could have been destroyed first, for all we know. But Harry still would have had to die, and like would have he been? Like would it would it have gone the same way as with Kings Cross? Like would he be, would he have been able to come back? Like, or would he have just been dead?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of bits in the plan where Dumbledore was just kind of lucky. That <laughs> yeah,
1: well, that's a lot of Dumbledore. I think. Yes, that is. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Dumbledore rolls the dice a lot, and Dumbledore is mean, pretty friggin' lucky. How could he? as you know, how could he assume that there was going to be that Harry was going to be at Malfoy Manor and wrest away Malfoy's wand from him, and or you know, the, these things that fortuitously fell into place that made this all work. Right. Well,
2: some of the things that were. Seemingly fortuitous, like oh, they found the sword in a lake. Yay! It seems like it's coincidence, but it's really set up because there's other mm-hmm. characters out there that are looking out for him because oh, Dumbledore yeah. set it up.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely things that he managed to get accomplished and set. I mean, because the part, of the the there is a part with the with the Elder One that is proper, like that Dumbledore set up by having Malfoy defeat him. Um, you know, it wasn't, it, it, there, there was this, the, the ownership of the wand changed hands. Um, I think there was an element where Snape was, was meant to actually take some ownership at some point, um, that didn't go the way that he anticipated, but I mean, it all still worked out. Dumbledore, like I said, got lucky and things worked out in many respects. And like you were saying, Alyssa, it's like the the timing of all of these realizations that Harry's had and the the actions they took. It, it's just very lucky that those things happened when they happened.
3: Yeah, man. Yeah. Of course, he made some mistakes along the way too. Whoops.
1: So, <laughs> oh, Dumbled- Dumbledore up. did or Harry did?
3: Dumbledore, like, oh, well, <laughs> no. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Quick shout out to, uh, the superior Dumbledore brother, Fourth, for looking out for her yeah. <laughs> in
3: this right. situation. Yeah, that's like that passage. It reminds me of when we first started the podcast and Noah would do these like close reads and when we would really like take a close look at passages, which we haven't really done in a long time. Um, but this I think is just like really one of those, especially one that I haven't thought of in this sort of depth before,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but. Continuing along, Harry's um, quest for information. So he tells Bill that he wants to talk to Griphook and Ollivander, and and he has to make a decision um, of who to talk to first. And we don't really know as readers the first time around, you know, why there's some urgency. And he has to make a decision, and whichever one he chooses first is going to make a difference. Um, And we know, you know, reading all the way through, it's because Voldemort is on his way to get the Elder Wand from Dumbledore. Um, but Harry, because he's come to terms, the chapter is all about him coming to terms with Dumbledore's setting up his decisions and what he wants Harry to do. Um, Harry choose Horcruxes for, he chooses Horcruxes first. And so he speaks to Griphook first. And I guess we can just really quickly question. I don't think, uh, there could be some dissent here. Like, does he make the right choice? Is this, I mean, is it an obvious choice?
0: Does it seem like it's super easy? It's not super easy and it's not obvious, but yes, it's the right choice. OK, it's it because, you know, what we're confronted with later is that when Harry reveals what the consequence of the choice is, Ron is like, what did you do? And right. like, you could have had them. You could have had the Elder Wand. And um, but that's the point. That's the point of Harry's epiphany is that he had to make the choice to not to seek, to not to seek, to to. um let it let that be. He wasn't supposed to have that weapon yet. He needed the knowledge of the horcruxes that was more important.
1: Well and something that always kind of bugged me about the seventh book, even though I mean I love it a lot, um, is that the hallows just kind of appear as an idea. Like obviously we the objects are present throughout the the books, but like, the idea of the Hallows and of the legend is just like, and surprise, now all of a sudden these are as important as the Horcruxes. And it's like, what?
0: <laughs> yeah, <they're, laughs>
1: When did this happen? <laughs>
0: they're, they've always been around, but their function becomes very akin to a deus ex machina because their functions haven't been summarized until this book. Um, so it does, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll get to that even more in depth when we get to the final battle and what the wand does. Um because I know there's endless complaints about that. Um, I think that, I think that was a shock because we are so used to rolling, you know, setting these things up in a way that perhaps the tale of the three brothers might have been given to us in an earlier book.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that that would have been satisfying, even if you just were to drop in a reference to a summary of the story. Well,
0: and then there's also that issue too, that the Hallows have to be so unknown. Um, like, the, or the quest of the Deathly Hallows is, like, such... She makes it really clear, and I think that, you know, that gets warped in the fandom a lot. Um, but it's such, like, a niche thing. Like, really, this isn't the thing a lot of people know about. You're not going to walk down the street and encounter people who, in the wizarding world, who know what the Deathly Hallows even are, if you say that.
1: Well, it's almost a bit like Bigfoot or the Grail. It's like it's a well-known enough story, but you don't really believe it's real. Mm-hmm but not
3: even well enough known that Ollivander knows about it, as we'll soon find out. Mm -hmm. So he starts speaking with Griphook. um, And we have a quick, the quick introduction. Harry recalls that Griphook is the, the goblin that takes him on his first Green trip with Hagrid. Um, And Griphook remembers Harry as well. And notes that Harry is famous amongst goblins as well. Um, Griphook remarks that Harry is an unusual wizard. Um, He, he says that first, um, after remarking on Harry burying Dobby. And he does it again after he talks about saving a goblin. And I always have a trouble getting a read on what Griphook really means here. Because it's not necessarily, well, no, it's definitely not affection. Um, is he just trying to figure out Harry here? Is, does he really have, like, a meaning in mind when he says unusual?
2: I, I took it that, um, I mean, he, he makes reference to, you know, Harry has buried a house elf. And he's, he treats someone like an equal who most of the wizarding world or the wand carriers, as they call them, um, you know, look down, looks down upon and that he treats him with equality and he's talking to Grip Hook, and has saved him like he considers him a human or equal. And I thought to myself, like the, I've never realized how I never saw the wizarding world through another creature size, even at as much with Dobby, I, I thought to myself like, wow, like the, the wizards in, in Harry Potter really are, um, more speciesist than I, than I had ever realized. And I, th- I think that's, that's what I was, that was what I was getting from Grip Hook.
1: Yeah. I think that it has a lot more to do with the fact that Harry is treating essentially second and third class citizens like, Equals.
3: Yeah, and we get to that pretty quickly. Um, Harry tells Griphook his plan of wanting to break into the Lestrange's vault. Um, Griphook is um, not surprised that Harry, unlike other wizards, is not interested in seeking treasure, um, particularly because of the way he sees Harry. And But he's still not crazy about the idea. And so we get this term that we just talked about, wand carriers. And so Ron pipes up... <laughs> God, Rod says, <laughs> well, goblins can do magic without wands. And so, like, as someone who's, like, you know, hated on Ron in the past, like, it, he plays, like, a dual purpose here, right? And and I think you really have to, like, think about it because it's not obvious what's going on. Like, Ron is representing both, like, the problem, like, this this lazy thought of wizard's oppressing them but he's also not like actively you know the part the part sect of wizards who are you know um demeaning and subverting goblins but at the same time and it's important to show that it's just this kind of lay ignorance that perpetuates it and ron's not necessarily culpable but there's this moment of now where we're getting to, like, learn about it a little bit more.
0: Well, that's that issue of if you're not, you know, working to solve the problem, you may be part of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And Ron kind of is that. Ron's that example almost all the time. Yeah. Um, that's true. Ron he, is
2: also just a really good, I mean, he's used as a really good plot device a lot of the time because it's through Ron that we realize sort of other little details of the wizarding world. Like when Ron early on says something about, my mom can make food out of nothing. And Hermione says, no, that's not how magic works. Like there's all these little places where Ron says, well, this is how the wizarding world works. And Hermione says, no, it's not. And, and, you know, (laughs) they represent these, these very, this very yin and yang part of this world so that we get to see that bigger picture. And it's really valuable.
1: I think that's actually a great that you bring that up because it kind of, the next point is how Hermione reacts. And obviously she is very much like, well, I'm a mudblood. Like, but I think that it's also very telling that even though she's also in this, uh, like underprivileged position, she's very quick to say, I'm just as hunted as house elves and goblins, which isn't explicitly true by any means. Like she's certainly at a disadvantage among other wizards, but I mean, generally speaking, everyone's pretty much fine. Like that's much more like, Voldemort and vo- blood purists are uh, are like touchy about that, but like she's not being subjugated in the same way that people uh, that creatures like goblins and house elves are. Uh, so it's kind of and that's a, a problem that Hermione has throughout the books, where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to champion this or be a part of this cause, but not fully comprehend the the nuances.
0: Well, and that's what's so complicated here with, that gets into why it's so complicated with Griphook, um, because he's somebody that, you know, he's, he's being pretty upfront to actually about, and it's kind of a shame that Harry, Ron, and Hermione, especially Hermione, aren't properly reading between the lines of what Griphook's saying, um, because he's making it clear that, like, you know, there's, there's more to this than he's you know, letting on, and that he's he's got very complicated issues with all of this. That goes back to kind of what you were asking Caleb about: what does Hook even think of Harry? And as we'll find out in a you know in a future chapter, Bill will clarify that that goblins have a very different way of thinking than wizards mm-hmm.
1: do. It's a very timely, kind of lesson, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so yeah, I think what you brought up, Alyssa, you really
3: have to think about it, but we should be questioning Hermione in this moment um I think she comes from a good place but you know we're not gonna like you know super dig into like the social justice issues that are really underlying here but there's a lot relevant here and like really questioning Hermione um you know she brings up SPEW and you know it becomes a very relevant movement she did now because as much as maybe Griphook shouldn't accept what she's saying fully and almost identify with her and i think he does because of this sentence he said it says the goblin gazed at hermione with the same curiosity he had shown harry so it seems like Griphook has come to this point where almost he sees hermione as that unusual wizard we're almost Mm -hmm. accepting her just as he did harry i don't know that he should at this point if i'm in his position
1: well i think it's hasty to say he accepts i think that there's still mistrust in the sense yeah, that these fair. are people who are essentially part of, like, like you said, like part of the problem, because like they have never given a thought to whether or not house elves and goblins should be able to carry a wand. And I mean that's something that could be debated, but you right. know, it's it's something that it, it's very hard to equate immediately, especially if you don't know anything about it. It's hard to say like, well, I'm a mudblood, like it's the same, and it's like, well, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but probably not.
3: Yeah, and I think that. They- I want to say this carefully, but uh, it's, it's interesting that Joe writes it almost so that we're focusing on Hermione, like, taking this moment to own the mudblood banner. Um, like she calls herself a mudblood for, really, like, owns up to it for the first time. Ron, you know, um, says something, I don't have it right in front of me. Don't call yourself. You he yeah. starts to mutter, and she's, why shouldn't I mudblood and proud of it? Um, that's really what we're focused on. Like, that's what Joe's trying to get us to focus on but it's much more complex what's going on here, Um, if you really get down into it. But the point is, is that seems to be at least enough for Griphook to think about it. (laughs) As crazy as he thinks the Gringotts break-in plan is, he says that he'll think about it. Um, And so they leave the room, and um, then we, Harry talks to her, Ron and Hermione, about what this was all about because now it's really come to light that Harry thinks that there's a Horcrux and the Lestrange vault at Gringotts. Um, so the one thing I thought about, so Harry seems to think, so this passage is one about all about now we know where another Horcrux is. And two, Harry really showing how he gets Voldemort, which is something that Hermione comments on. Um, so he talks about, how Voldemort would have really envied someone with a Gringotts vault. And not just that, he says a Gringotts key. Um, I kind of question that. D- I know that that's been true of things in the past, you know. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head, just like, you know, a ta- well, like he gathers objects that are really important to wizarding society or really, you know, um, prof- important to wizarding society. But does he envy a Gringotts vault, something that's controlled by goblins? I guess I'm just really not sure about that.
0: I think he envies a Gringotts vault not because of the. I think the goblin part is irrelevant. I think the part that he envies is that it represents a certain level of status, mm-hmm. um, like you own something and that you have something that somewhere to put precious things, um, and that you know there's a monetary value associated with it because Voldemort has a very Juvenile outlook on the world it's a very um <clears throat> it's it, and that's what's explored I think in that in that first memory of him as a child in the orphanage um, and
1: I think it's something only wizards can have as well it's not only yeah. status it's magical and Voldemort obviously identifies very strongly with that magical special part of himself,
3: yeah right, and so do you think it's that they have such like she, that they have a vault that's like really important, like they have a high security vault for only like really high status families, because in theory he could have gotten his own vault, you know, when he got out of school, when he started, um, working at Borgen and Berks. He,
2: he was never rich enough to, to need a vault. I mean, like, I, I mean, he, he he's using a vault from one of the most, uh, richest, powerful wizarding families. It, I mean, it kind of makes sense that this status really would be meaningful to him because he, when he was a human, he had so little, you know, before he came, became the Lord Voldemort. He was just, he was just, a another, another guy who didn't have a a vault to fill with riches. He was just, Mm -hmm. he, he was just Tom Riddle.
0: Yeah. I think that's important, Serena, because the, the people who, a lot of the vaults we see that are important in the story are, not only represent privilege, but they also represent these long standing families who have very these quote pure blood roots in the wizarding world mm-hmm. um it's a It's another sign of kind of the the length the length of the time that your family has this vault and the riches that it's filled with represent how pure your blood is
1: mm-hmm. yeah, well said,
0: thank you <laughs> all right. I'm gonna keep pushing like devil
3: devil's advocate against this like pat- this part of the passage. <laughs> so Harry um, doesn't think that Bellatrix knows it's a Horcrux, um, but she clearly thought it was important enough. She got super worried and anxious about it. We saw that in the previous chapter. So if she doesn't think it's a Horcrux, um, what did she think it was, or did she just? I mean, Bellatrix's personality is almost set up to where she would just blindly follow, mm-hmm. like Voldemort said, it's important, and that's the end of her brain um, function about it. Like yeah, that's ditto. where she stops. Or is, or just like I'm just trying to like humanize her a little bit, I guess, like to like think of how she thought about this.
1: Oh uh, well, I think there's a little bit of a parallel with Lucius and the diary here. I mean, even though they didn't know, like, ne- didn't necessarily know what these objects were, they knew that they're important to Voldemort. And obviously in Lucius's case, he felt, well, you know, Voldemort's gone now. I don't like, this isn't, this is nothing really like, cause there's no obvious significance, but I mean, there's a much more obvious significance to the sword. And, um, if, and I doubt, although I doubt Bellatrix knew that he had so many Horcruxes, I actually kind of feel like she might have known that this one was, or like was planned to be one maybe because she does say, uh, at one point, I think it's in the last chapter, like, he trusted me with his, you know, with his most secret, and then gets cut off. Um, yeah.
3: See, I tend to agree. I think she had an inkling, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she gets
0: Voldemort. I wonder if she did, just because Horcruxes are kind of said to be this thing that not a lot of... Horcruxes are like the hallows, like, actually not as many people as you think know about them know about them.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. I th- I'm more inclined to agree that she just kind of blindly went with whatever he told her it was. Um, hmm. Even if that was a lie. And maybe that's the reason that it was cut off in the text, is because it's kind of meant to be like, well, he told her a total BS story and she bought it.
1: <laughs> that could um, be.
0: That, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that was a great parallel to bring up, was because Voldemort brings that up in his mind when once they get the sword and the goblet out of the vault, Voldemort realizes that it was stupid of him to trust both Lucius and Bellatrix with his horcruxes. Um, mm-hmm. And I think as far as humanizing Bellatrix, Caleb, this is this is probably her most human-like failing. Mm-hmm. Um, that she's so audacious to think that she can... She, 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 the, the, the point in Malfoy Manor when she loses her cool um is a big mistake on her part, because she's she gives sure. it away. Yeah. Um And I think Voldemort thought she wasn't going to do that. Right. So. Good point.
2: The other thing about the sword is that, yeah, she could have thought it was a Horcrux, or she could have just, you know, whatever Lord Voldemort said she would just go with. But, you know, the sword is a sword. It is a sword of Gryffindor, and it can be used to kill horcruxes or you know destroy horcru- horcruxes or you know could potentially she knows like harry potter's a gryffindor and he- it could present itself to him i can see how they would want to keep it locked up no matter what it is mm-hmm. it's it's a weapon
0: the sword i think would be easy to exp- like she- he could like you said serena i think he probably told her that it was some kind of weapon that harry could use against him
4: uh-huh. right
0: um the cup i think is the part where it gets kind of muddy Mm-hmm. Just because Fine. that's the actual Horcrux, but true. So mentioned this briefly
3: earlier, but I just wanted to quickly point it out. Um, when they after they talk about this, Hermione just um, says, "You really understand him," um, which I think is like certainly becoming true. And but I think it's more interesting that Harry accepts it. He doesn't try to like push it off. He says bits of him, bits. I just wish I'd understood Dumbledore as much, but we'll see. Um, so he's really owning up to. You know, he does get him, and this is something he's really just connected to.
0: Well, and it's important, too, for Hermione to say it, because I think Hermione's kind of quietly accepting, like, Okay, I'm going to stop telling you to use the yeah. legitimacy now. Right. Because it's mm-hmm. obviously, that's not how this plan's supposed to go anymore and honestly so.
3: that was getting a point after time, <laughs> <so>. she's <laughs> wrong do. the
0: one thing her mind has always been wrong on yeah that yeah. she's she's finally relented that's kind of her way of admitting like yeah this is a tool that we need so next we turn to 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 olivander
3: um who's quite grateful of harry saving him and he's happy to help even though harry apologizes for disturbing him um the first thing harry um we forget that you know there's there's maybe a need for Harry to get some personal um, knowledge and um, info or whatever out of this. But he finds out that his wand cannot be fixed. We've kind of forgotten about his wand for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um So it's pretty crushing news for Harry. He says that he's steeled himself, you know, for the news, but it's still a pretty crushing blow, understandably. Um, and I thought it was really great for Joe to bring some wands in, you know, that aren't necessarily relevant for the plot. But we get a chance to just like look at a couple of wands. We get to see Bellatrix, um, Draco and Peter's wands. Um, so Bellatrix is his walnut and dragon heart string, 12 and three quarter inches, unyielding, which I think obviously the description is perfect.
0: Yeah, unyielding. <laughs> <laughs> walnut on Pottermore says, and this is all from Ollivander. From his perspective, it's Mm -hmm. highly intelligent witches and wizards ought to be offered a walnut wand for trial first, because in nine cases out of ten, the two will find in each other their ideal mate. Walnut wands are often found in the hands of magical innovators and inventors, a handsome wood possessed of unusual uh, versatility and adaptability. Note of caution, however. While some woods are difficult to dominate and may resist the performance of spells that are foreign to their natures, The walnut wand will, once subjugated, perform any task its owner desires, provided that the user is of sufficient brilliance. This makes for a truly lethal weapon in the hands of a witch or wizard of no conscience, for the wand and the wizard may Mm. feed from each other in a particularly unhealthy manner.
1: That sounds like her her relationship with Voldemort. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
3: Absolutely.
0: No conscience.
3: And then we get Draco's wand, which is hawthorn and unicorn hair, ten inches
0: precisely reasonably springy (laughs) reasonably springy is a nice a nice giveaway actually for what's coming up with Malfoy so it's interesting that
3: follows the length description precisely like you know it's like exactly that nothing else but then we get the like description of it is reasonably springy so we've got some like flexibility
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well because one length Ollivander has mentions on Pottermore is related to kind of your the amount of personality you have mm-hmm. that's more associated with personality and i think that works for draco because that's a very that kind of suggests that very um austere nature of like right it's a 10 perfect yep yeah, a perfect a perfect 10 yep. Um, nothing more or less but the the reasonably springy is nice because that indicates a of a, a flexibility in um in his way of thinking um, which is the 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 idea of the flexibility of the wand, um, are also kind of ways that um, they reflect how how people will behave in future and the choices they'll make. What does Hawthorne say too? And and that's also neat too to find out that his core is unicorn because unicorn hair is a very nice core. So I'm I'm assuming Malfoy didn't tell people that on a daily basis because he probably right. would have been teased. <laughs>
1: I feel like there was a – I don't know if this was a theory or th- something explicitly said on Pottermore or something, uh, but I remember there was a lot of talk years ago about how so many of the innocent characters have unicorn hair, like Cedric had it. Ron's first wand of his own was unicorn hair core, like that kind of thing, and talking mm. about these characters that are in- inherently kind of innocent ha- or good have that and it's interesting to note that he does have it.
2: There's know. there's that one scene at the beginning of the book where Draco Malfoy is just staring and staring at that teacher who's floating above the table who's going to get, you know, tortured and murdered. Mm. And he, you know, it reminds me that he is a kid and he he might act arrogant and he might like he might act like a jerk and he you know might be you know present himself as this big bad Slytherin, but he really is just a kid who's doing, you know, he's been put in this Slytherin culture and the Slytherin family, and he does show some of his own character in in the last chapter in this book that he he really is his own person, and I think at his very heart he is that unicorn hair.
0: Yeah, no, I think what you're saying, Serena, speaks actually to the kind of the overall issue with what what a bully is. And that Malfoy's been kind of raised to think certain ways, and he's been kind of put in a very in a position where he's supposed to be the man of the household, Mm -hmm. um, to live, walk in his father's footsteps, and kind of not question things. And once that, once he's faced with those questions, all of a sudden he he actually starts thinking about them instead of blindly going along with other with what other people have been telling him. But it's been so long in his life. You know, it's been 16, 17 years that he's been hearing these things that it's been very damaging to him.
1: Something I like about Draco that we learn about him in in the last book, as well as in this book, is that he is, despite his, like he's, I mean, I guess it kind of goes along with being all talk, but he is very repulsed by violence and by brutality, like brutality. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously he breaks Harry's nose, but like, he really... Like he he is obviously terrified and repulsed by how they treated Charity Burbage, and obviously he was repulsed by what he would have had to do to Dumbledore. Yeah, and I think that's a huge marker for what his heart really is, despite what even J.K. Rowling has said about him in recent months.
0: And the, mm-hmm. the basic summary of Hawthorne on Pottermore is that it's it like the the word that keeps coming up is that it's a paradoxical wand. Um, Hmm. that it's full of contradictions and that Ollivander found that it's very good at, it can be very good at healing spells, but it's also very adept at curses. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And that Hawthorne ones have a notable peculiarity. Their spells can, when badly handled, backfire, which I think speaks a lot to Malfoy's um, character and his plans in book six. His kind of... Visions of glory for himself and what he'll do for his family totally backfire on him.
2: Yeah. It's interesting because this does become Harry's wand, mm. and and all these things that have this great, um, you know, it's it's a good duality that it could work. It's a wand that could work for both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like the there. And I don't know if Ollivander really says that in this section. But perhaps that the m- reason it's even more compatible is because of that duality, that the wands, the wands would, and the reasonably springy flexibility, allow for, a, there's there's a lack of rigidity about who this wand could go to as far as their personality.
3: Right. And then finally we get Peter Pettigrew's wand, which is chestnut and dragon heartstring, string, nine and a quarter inches, brittle.
0: Brittle. (laughs) That sounds about right.
1: Yeah. Very nervous and, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cracks under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a dragon heartstring core. I should add.
3: Hey, Hey. I have to think about what my original Pottermore wand was. Now I can't remember. It's been a long time.
0: Oh, it says Potter on Pottermore when paired with dragon heartstring chestnut may find its best match. Among those who are overfond of luxury and material things, mm-hmm. and less scrupulous than they should be about how they are obtained.
4: Hmm.
0: So, that kind of fits. Because there's not much in here that speaks to Pettigrew in, in Chestnut, but, um, although I suppose, Alyssa, you'll appreciate this. This is the This is a most curious multifaceted wood, which varies greatly in character, depending hmm. on its core. Interesting. And, takes a great deal of color from the personality that possesses it
1: that makes a lot of sense <laughs> uh, i think that it's also interesting generally with um wand lore and sort of wand making that how much of this could be chalked up to uh, self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> mm, <laughs> um mm-hmm. if you were to if you were to study what Wand woods and wand cores mean, because um, I mean he's like, Ollivander in this case selects them for you, and it's a little bit. It's almost like a horoscope. It's like personality quiz. Um, so like, how does that factor in to the trajectory of your life?
0: Well, and we know that there's a lot of people in this in in this time period after post post the war that are going to be getting brand new wands.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that idea that you know yeah. the, the the, this un, this uncommon thing where you get to get an, a new wand later in your life and perhaps that one. I mean, people, it's kind of perfect timing that Pottermore brought back the, the sorting quiz and the wand quiz today um, because um, I've already seen people actually posting on my Facebook that they're like, Oh, I got the, I got a different house this time, or I got oh. the same house, but I got a different wand. Oh my God. Um, which to me, I w- there. there is an option, listeners. If you go on Pottermore, if you remember your old username, you can actually dig up your old account, which is what I did. Cause I was like, I don't want anything to be different. Um, but that's certainly
3: what I'll be doing the first <laughs> thing after we finish this recording.
0: <laughs> but yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's back. At least that part is back. But yeah, but, but yeah, like there, there are people who are actually finding that, that you, you can ostensibly get a different wand. Um so but that, you know, we're seeing we just saw that with um or we will see that. I'm I'm mistaken. We will see that when Ollivander leaves, he'll send Luna a new wand. Right.
3: So we yeah, so the next point is Harry actually gets the confirmation um from Ollivander that you can win over wands. We've talked a lot about that both in the recap and the last couple of minutes. Um so we know now that that I'm pretty sure this is the first like full confirmation that this is a thing. You can win over wands. Which is obviously going to be super important at the end of the book. Um, we know now that Harry has won has won over Malfoy's wand, um, and this transitions into the discussion of the Elder wand um, and get into the need to kill people to take over wands. Um, primarily, Ollivander is very startled that Harry knows about this mythology of the elder one or not mythology for Ollivander. Um, these facts, because he certainly believes it to be true. Um, Harry never really, it's an interesting conversation that, you know, Ollivander keeps, he's really startled constantly that Harry knows. And he asks how he knows about it. Harry never answers, but Ollivander continues the conversation. Like Harry is such a dominant force in this conversation of someone who's arguably one of the most, uh, talented, wizards you know of their time um certainly at least in one area of magic and it's just so like i mean he's obviously in a weakened state but it's just really just shows how harry takes over this conversation
0: yeah olivander's actually and it's even more i think properly fresh fleshed out on pottermore at least it was when everything was the way it used to be but olivander's kind of olivander's basically a savant um when it comes to wands like he he if if you know Noah were here to ask if wands were alive, I think Ollivander would answer that they are, because um, mm-hmm. he he almost can speak to wands. Um, he knows kind of wand language and um, just the, this deeper kind of almost spiritual understanding of wands that most people don't have. And he even and he he so audacious to claim that even most of his peers, his fellow wand makers, don't have. The um, this this sense of wands that he does. And I don't think that necessarily comes strictly from a showmanship by by my wands thing. Um, it, the tone that he puts off in on Pottermore really suggests that he truly believes that there's some kind of special gift with wands that he and his family have passed down through the years.
3: Right. But we do get a break about at least something that Ollivander does not know about. For all he knows about wands is... He cannot explain now.
0: This is shocking. And
3: he couldn't explain it to Voldemort. What was going on with Harry and Voldemort. Um, yeah. Harry and Voldemort with their wands, because, you know, we thought it was just, um, the twin cores that was, um, making Voldemort unable to really overpower Harry whenever they interacted. But then obviously it happens at the beginning of this book with Lucius's wand. Um, and and Um Ollivander can't explain that, and obviously Voldemort isn't very happy about this. And here, Ollivander just has to point blank say he doesn't understand what's going on. Um, which, like you said, Michael, super shocking.
0: Yeah, it's nice because it's we actually are getting a lot of answers to our questions here, and so Rowling's doing a good job of still keeping us intrigued about like because uh, you know by the point that Ollivander says I don't know he's on a roll with giving us what we want to know. And then there's kind of a stall right there. And that's a pretty big one.
3: Mm -hmm. This really leads up to the realization that Voldemort now isn't just going after the elder wand just to overpower Harry, because we get, we figure out that Voldemort is going to learn that Harry no longer has his wand anymore uh, because of Priory and Cantatum he's, they're going, Voldemort's going to realize that the wand was broken because Hermione tried, they tried to mend it with Hermione's wand. Um, but then Ollivander says, he's determined to, pet, so he says right before it, it's more than just trying to overpower you. He is determined to possess it because he believes it will make him truly invulnerable. And so there's an interesting thing here. So earlier, whenever we first learn about the Deathly Hallows, Harry realizes that this is probably the only Deathly Hallow Voldemort, Probably only knows about, certainly is only the one he's focused on. And at the end of this chapter, we find that Ollivander also doesn't know what the Deathly Hallows are. He's completely confounded by the term.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, um, I think this is that thing that the, the movie misses and that the fandom mi- um, kind of misses a lot when they reflect on Hallows. Um, because, of course, the book is named this, but it's really, I think, that was the backfire of rolling calling it Deathly Hallows. Um, because I think there's this misconception, even by the fans, that more characters know what the Deathly Hallows are than actually right. do. Um, it's, I think it's a, it's a really good to establish that Olivander doesn't know because Ollivander is so knowledgeable in wand lore. And he even knows the other names for the Elder Wand, but he can't name where it came from, um, as far as the origin story. He doesn't even know. Um, and that's surprising. So if he doesn't know, then... And it's clear that Voldemort doesn't know because he doesn't... If I mean, I don't know if Voldemort had ever... If Voldemort was aware of the connection to the Tale of the Three Brothers, if he would still... I think he'd still seek out the wand just as voraciously and, still, and just as unbridled. Like, I don't think he'd be cautious about getting the wand, even if he knew what, what it could do.
1: Right. Actually, uh, it strikes me as a little bit of a, a plot hole, almost, just considering that, like, Ron knows the tale of three brothers and the idea of the Elder Wand from, like, childhood because it's, like, a kid's story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little surprising to me that uh, Ollivander wouldn't be aware of that. Even even just a legendary con- connection.
0: Well, it's interesting because the it's, it's kind of dependent on how the Hallows were digested into Wizarding culture, and I think this really small subset of wizards took it more like I think I think most wizards take it as like a Grimm's fairy tale where it's a fun little story and there's really nothing more to it. And it's a morality tale Mm -hmm. versus this subsect of of wizards who took it almost more like a Greek myth or like a treasure map Um, that there's elements that are fictionalized, but there's also parts of it that are true Um, and or like the Holy Grail myth. Um, that you, 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 there, there's, there might be some truth to this, but I think having it come from somebody like Xenophilia shows that that's considered to be kind of kooky in the wizarding world. Like, right. A- right. That's what I was about to
3: point out. The only two characters we know of, and actually Xenophilus is the only one we see bring up Deathly House, but there's only two characters we've ever interacted with that know it about the Deathly Hallows in this way, and that's Xenophilius and Dumbledore. We know Grindelwald bullies in it too, but we don't really ever interact with him. But when you think of those two wizards, like they're, they're like, they're just so different. And that's mm-hmm. who's bringing the truth of the Deathly Hallows out in this chap in this chapter and then the previous chapter.
0: Yeah. It, eccentricity doesn't lend credence to the Deathly Hallows concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, it detracts from it. I think for most people,
2: it's um, really good misdirection.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm. That idea that actually no, this may not be. I mean that I suppose when you think of it that way, that's perhaps where because we were debating before about why Hermione so intently doubts this, and really in the way that could be why. Like she she doesn't trust the source material, which right. is fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean she
1: she's not wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, she's not definitely not wrong to question. Obviously, here she I think her reaction when Ollivander starts listing off the names of the, of the elder one, the alternative names. I think that's when it hits her. And she's kind of horrified to realize that it, it does actually exist. Yeah. Um,
3: so, so the conversation ends with Olivander. like we just mentioned, he doesn't know about the deathly house. Um, and so then while this is going on, we're getting brief mentions through both of these conversations of Harry realizing that Voldemort is getting closer and closer. And once this conversation ends, um, Harry explains to Harry and Hermione, um, to Ron and Hermione, what's actually going on. So we we discover that Dumbledore has the Elder Wand now, um, and he tells them, and Harry, in telling them, really has to fully accept that they can't chase Voldemort down for the wand, and they absolutely must follow the, they must go after the Horcruxes. Um, Ron is like, you know, why are not we going after him? We need to go, but um, Harry says it's too late. This isn't our path. Um, and I think there's a real importance in like, not just telling himself but you know, telling all three of them and this is where we're going forward. And then we get to one of the most eerie scenes of the series. Um, when we fully go to Voldemort back at Hogwarts, um, and I'm turning into back to it in my book. Um, because this is the first time we see Voldemort and Snape interact at, around the Hogwarts area. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells, he says, I'll sh- I'll, I shall join you in the castle shortly. He said in his high, cold voice, leave me now. Snape bowed and sat off back up the path, his black cloak billowing behind him. So I just thought it was really interesting that Joe made sure to have them interact as Voldemort enters the grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and v- Voldemort's going forward. And, and in a second, he cast upon himself a disillusionment charm, which I think it was interesting that Joe made sure to have him use that because we've had these comparisons to the real invisibility cloak and how it's one that you know it's not like a disillusionment charm or something that wears off and that's something that voldemort still has to rely on because he doesn't have this deathly hallow because he doesn't know about it
0: and i think too the the it's implied that because voldemort is as powerful in many ways as dumbledore his disillusionment charm is stronger than a normal person's Mm -hmm. because dumbledore's was Um, And Rollings confirmed that, and Sorcerer's Stone basically confirms that, that that Dumbledore has means of being invisible that are more powerful than normal wizards. Right. Or even a cloak.
3: So then it says um, about Voldemort, And he walked on around the edge of the lake, taking in the outlines of the beloved castle, his first kingdom, his birthright.
0: What a douche. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: that, that line kind of just like almost was like, what? This is kind of out of nowhere. Like, I mean, it's not, it's not unreasonable that he thinks this way. But it's just like because we're so quickly thrown into Voldemort's point of view. And we never get him thinking this way about Hogwarts to this extreme. It was just really – it just really stood out to me.
0: Yeah, it well, it should because it's like uh, – Voldemort, from what what we've understood before, is his feelings about Hogwarts we're almost supposed to see are similar to Harry's, mm-hmm. um, in that it's a it's an alternative right. home. But this is, I think, the point where you we first see oh that's not the case. Like Voldemort has taken it to a bastardized extreme, where he's like right. this isn't just like a home for me. This is my home. Like this is this this is my house and I have a right to this because my ancestor made a a horrifying basement here with a snake, (laughs) so therefore it's mine. (laughs) uh, I think it's
1: also telling that he uses like I mean the first thing that he takes he attempts to take over through Draco's assistance is Hogwarts. I mean obviously he's infiltrating the Ministry as well, but he understands that he needs to take Hogwarts in order to have that footing in the worsening world.
0: Well, yeah. It's a little
1: bit like Nazi youth, like where it's kind of like, all right, like I need a, a place to like educate my soldiers kind of.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, I think a lot of people have talked in the past about, you know, why didn't Voldemort take a bigger hand in taking over the ministry? Like why doesn't he become the minister? Why doesn't he take that, you know, role and... I think, like you were saying, Alyssa, he knows that it's more valuable to plant ideas in children's minds um, than to try and because they're more malleable than adults, and that's that's more power that that is going to give him more power.
1: Well, I think it's a lot easier to keep people afraid when you're out of sight as well. Yes, like it's lot, yeah. either people can ignore it by saying, "Well, he's not actually here," uh-huh. like, or to say, "Well, you know." Like where could he be, and that's very scary. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. This is possibly the only scene where we get, and I could be wrong about this, but where we really get into his Voldemort's point of view, where we get his his feelings, his thoughts, his emotions. Um, he's as he is approaching the tomb. Um, it describes him feeling a rush of controlled euphoria, the heady, that heady sense of purpose and destruction. Um, he splits the tomb open with his wand. Another reference to, like, wands being so relevant. He says, how fitting that this would be its last great act, talking about his old U-wand. Um, and then we see Dumbledore. The shrouded figure was as long and thin as it had been in life. And he raised the wand again. Um, Voldemort, or Dumbledore's face is translucent, pale, sunken, yet almost perfectly preserved. They had left his spectacles on the crooked nose. He felt amused derision. Dumbledore's hands were folded upon his chest, and there it lay, clutched beneath him, buried with him. And so then this is, I really feel the moment where Voldemort, at least himself feels, and for now, for everyone, really conquers Dumbledore. I mean, he obviously didn't kill him, but he took what's probably maybe more important than his life, and t- in some respects, is taking the, the Elder Wand and Voldemort thinks to himself, had he thought that the Dark Lord would be so, would be scared to violate his tomb? And then he picks up the wand and thought this was interesting. A shower of sparks flew from its tip, sparkling over the corpse of its last owner, ready to serve a new master at last. So earlier in the chapter, they ask Olivander if it has to be passed by murder. And of course, we know that Voldemort, or that Door was in a sense murdered. Uh, oh, he was killed at least by someone, but it's so complicated. Once we find out later, you know, the person Snape kills him, but the wand never changes ownership because Draco technically has ownership over the Elder Wand. So, it gets. I think it is interesting that they ask Ollivander, you know, earlier in the chapter, if it has to be killing by a person to take over the wand, which is obviously not technically the case it's much more complicated but to get we can talk about that in a second why do we think the wand sparks is it just you know passing hands taking a new owner
0: mm, i think it i would guess that it sparks because the the elder wand the thing that has the you know because we asked a question about you know which hallow would the listeners pick and people who picked the wand said oh i wouldn't use it to gain power i'd use it to wash my dishes really well and hmm. you know, that's nice and all, but actually <laughs> the the wand won't I don't think the wand would work that way because mm-hmm. the wand the 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 wand is like the wand is uh, very much in a way like Gryffindor's sword. It takes in that which makes it stronger. And so the wand has been learning all of the the wand the the wand would be better at combative spells and powerful yeah. magic, um, dark or light. And I think the wand recognized probably I'm assuming and this is all just, you know, me just pulling from the little we've got on this. But I'm assuming that the wand just recognizes that Voldemort is very powerful. Not necessarily that it belongs to him. Because as we see, the wand still works for Voldemort um, as he's using it in the Battle of Hogwarts. Um, it still does basically what he wants it to do. The the movie kind of tries to exaggerate the point by having the wand crack when he uses oh, it. God. Uh, I, think, I, can, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the movie, the movie has to get that point across because the movie doesn't explain this very well. Right? I think no, it's true. I so. think
2: he says the wand resists me, Um and and I do wonder because of that statement. Because I, well, I mean, it's hard to go back to that moment when that scene first happens, but knowing what I know afterwards, I wonder: does is that the wand's? little spark of resistance is the wand saying like Ugh (laughs) he's not he's not my
0: master. (laughs) 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 Put me down.
2: Stop, put me down, put me down. (laughs) Yeah. I mean at this point,
1: I like Drake like or Harry. Harry's already the master of the wand. (laughs) So it's kind of like it's it was never gonna work for him in that in that way, in the way that he hoped it would in terms of being the all conquering master.
0: The only time I can think of when one like the most significant time I can think of when a wand involuntarily sparks is when Harry, and there's more moments, but this one is probably the most significant one is of course, when Harry gets his correct wand and waves it through the air for the Mm. first time. And it sparks, Mm. um, and notably it sparks the house colors of Gryffindor before he's even been sorted. (laughs) Um, uh, but, but I don't know if that's just a knee jerk. Harry also in Goblet of Fire, he's cleaning his wand and it's like shooting little sparks as he's doing it. Um, (laughs) L- Alyssa, so many fan fiction jokes. I'm not going to be the one to say it. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think that's just kind of a. It might just be an involuntary. I'm assuming on the part of the book, it's just kind of a theatrical thing. Like, it's, it's more exciting if the wand does something mm-hmm. rather than if he's just like. And then he picked up the right. wand and held it in his hand. I had legitimately <laughs> forgotten that that had
3: happened in the text.
0: Yeah, because they make such a big hoopla of it in the movie. Right. It's like, it's and so not... you assume, oh, that didn't happen in the book. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Because it's so overplayed in the movie. Well, and of course, in the movie, it's like a, a, a lightning storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same idea. I think it, it to me, it, it just as far as a as far as a literary standpoint, it's just theatrical. It's just to make the moment more visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Because she's never really described, that's the other thing too, is that wands in, uh, I think that's the thing we forget too as readers, is that wands in the books are uh, are m- implied to just be sticks.
4: Mm-hmm. Like
0: they're not, she, she can't go on a visual description of the wand because there's nothing visually about the wands that distinguish them from each other, um, mm-hmm. other than maybe their colors based on the wood they're made out of. But otherwise there's no, there's no design, you know, the, the, the elder wand, luckily by chance, because they didn't know that when they designed it in prisoner, because they just thought it was Dumbledore's wand. Luckily the elder wand ended up having this very distinct design Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the movie. Um, it's actually designed to look like little beehives because Dumbledore's name is associated with bees. Bumblebee. Yeah. It's old English. So it, it was, that was a kind of a happy accident um that the wand ended up looking the as as significant as it did um but but I, I think maybe the sparks are just a replacement because otherwise the wand is not that remarkable in visual appearance right it's just a wand sure
1: i think uh just this is probably nothing but i think it's also interesting to point out that uh most bees will die in order to protect their nest like as once yeah. they sting once that's it
0: Oh, hey. For
1: certain kinds of bees.
0: See? right? It all fits. It does. It all means something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> Full circle.
0: So, yeah, that's,
3: that's how this heavy chapter ends with um, Voldemort getting a big win, getting the wand.
1: Man, this was a heavy chapter, man.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bummer. <Telling you>. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and that's how the movie chose to end it. So now now <laughs> right. we now we've fully done the movie and and that that part of the movie and that part of the book. Yeah. And before we end our show, uh we of course want to make sure and dig a little deeper with you the listeners with our podcast question of the week. This week I would really like to explore Ollivander. This is kind of something that a uh, question that I've chewed on since my very first reading of Sorcerer's Stone. Um and I think it'll really kind of be fun for you guys to explore, especially because this is kind of our last chance to explore Ollivander in depth as a character, because this is pretty much the last time we're going to see him. Um, So, the question is, in this chapter, Harry reflects on his first encounter with Ollivander, noting that he had been unsure, when they first met, of how much he liked Ollivander. Even now, having been tortured and imprisoned by Voldemort, the idea of the Dark Wizard in possession of this wand seemed to enthrall him as much as it repulsed him. This is an aspect of Ollivander that has in, has been anticipated since Sorcerer's-slash-Philosopher's Stone. Why is this aspect of Ollivander's character recalled? What is the significance of this to Harry's journey? So to answer that question, listeners, head on over to com. check out the podcast Question of the Week post, and you'll be able to explore this question with us a little further. And we may be able to read some of your responses on next week's show.
3: And we want to take a second to thank Serena, both Serena and our special guest host, for joining us this week. And Alyssa for jumping in uh, to fill up one of the host spots. Yay.
2: Thank you. It, it has been so exciting to be on your show.
3: Thank you, Serena. You are a great guest. Absolutely. And yeah, as we do that, legitimately, this has been, we were talking about this like in our break a second ago. This has been such a great chapter discussion because there's just been so much and I didn't anticipate it. And I'm sure this is going to be the case as we keep like drawing up to the end. But this was, there was just a lot of great things happening on this discussion. So thanks guys for being a part of that.
1: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
3: And if you would like to be on the show as one of our guests, yes, there are spots available as we close out Deathly Hallows just head over to the Be on the show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com all you need is a set of apple or similar headphones and you will be all set you do not need any fancy equipment
0: and uh, <laughs> well you can also contact us um, here at alohomora there's many ways to do that um, you can follow us on twitter alohomora mn uh, on facebook.com/open the dumbledore our tumblr account mn alohomora podcast our instagram alohomora mn our uh, main website, of course, alohamora.mugglenet.com, where you can leave us comments on both the main site as well as our forums. And while you're there, you're, you feel free to download a ringtone for free of our catchy themed t- uh, song from the show. Um, or send an owl to audio boom. Um, you can go to alohamora.mugglenet.com to find that as well. It's free. You'll see a little uh, bar on the side to record um, a message for us that you may be able to hear actually on the show, that we may be able to look at some of your questions on that, on audio. Just make sure, please, to keep it under 60 seconds so that we can actually fit it into the show.
3: Also, make sure to check out our store where we have a lot of great products that we are selling. And just as a last reminder to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash alohomora, particularly if you want to find out early what our plans are post-Deathly Hallows.
0: And, of course, we have the Alohomora smartphone app. You can now download it for free, no cost to you. Search a podcast source. In your phone's app store, that's something I need to try and do now that I finally have a smartphone to do that for. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I finally updated, so I, I can do that app now, too. Um, but that app <laughs> usually includes lots of kind of fun little behind-the-scenes things, um, transcripts, bloopers, all kinds of fun, cool stuff. So make sure and check that out. But for now, um, we are heading out from this episode of Mora. I'm Michael Harley.
1: I'm Alyssa Jeanette.
0: And I'm Caleb Graves. Thank you for listening to episode 175 of moro Open the Dumbledore. Curious, very curious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the point that Karkaroff has kind of come to accept death after all of that struggle is is very poignant and kind of very, very understated. So it's cool to kind of be able to talk about it.
0: Did you say? Did you say Karkaroff?
1: Oh, I'm oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking, I'm looking at the notes at what I wrote down, and because I, sorry, uh, Grindelwald. Why did I say Carrow? Grindelwald. I just figured
0: the listeners would be like, "What?"
1: No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. I was looking at my notes, at, like a dupe. Sorry. Uh, just edit that out. It's fine. Um,